Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the co-founding attorneys of Illegal Geeks. Continuing our marathon of how many episodes can we record in a week on different uh, intellectual property, and we are back for Lower Decks, season three. I don't remember the episode this is uh, numbered, but, oh, it's six and seven. Six Pardon. and seven. Six and seven. Here all trust nothing and a mathematically perfect redemption. Uh, my first officer this evening is Nari Ailey. Nari, how are you? I'm doing great, Josh. Uh, once again, these were delights to watch. <laughs> um, I personally really loved that they circled back to Peanut Hamper after everything. Like the last we saw her, she was drifting off into the void. Not only went back to her, new intro, it was all about her. There are deep cuts to Castaway with Wilson. And I'm not sure if there's a Sophia volleyball company or not, but whatever they did, good work, uh, very good work. And yeah, let's start off with with just the amazing love letter to Deep Space Nine. Which oh my goodness! With all the original voice uh, or actors doing the voices, I was I was so impressed. And we both talked about this. Uh, Deep Space Nine is our favorite series. It is very well done. And from they played their intro music twice. Uh, circling the station and yeah so just that was fantastic I loved that (laughs) just keep circling just keep circling so we have IP issues right out of the gate well buried in this uh that that take a while to surface and you know you do a lot of IP in your practice why don't you uh, walk us through all of the shenanigans that Quark engages in that really do highlight the need for counsel Yes, uh, I'm absolutely happy to, you know, uh, like you were saying, there's a lot of intellectual property right now in the in the shows that the legal geeks are covering generally, you know, She-Hulk obviously being a big one recently. Um, But I have to say this season in particular of Star Trek Lower Decks has been just feeding me (laughs) uh, intellectual property issues in delightful ways that I never expected. You know, we had, uh, uh, what was it, Batleth and Baknooks from just a little bit ago. uh, And this time time we have um, at least two big areas of intellectual property law that are implicated, um, uh, which are patents and trade secrets. So one of the core plot lines of Here All Trust Nothing um, is a purported sort of, you know, a a trade negotiation to try to open trade relations between the Federation and the Karama, um, which uh, uh, watchers of Deep Space Nine will recall as um, a species that lived uh, formerly under the Dominion, um, uh, uh, essentially were a mercantile species that performed um, a lot of commodities trading and other trade uh, under the Dominion. Um, There were relatively unsuccessful attempts by the um, uh, Ferengi to try to open trade relations with them. I think actually, I take it back, I believe unsuccessful followed by successful, but there were not formal relations um, or trade treaties between the Karama and the the Federation directly. 
Um, so, uh, what happens here? Um, apparently this is a guise for agents of the Karama nation, uh, nation state entity to, um, arrive at Deep Space Nine in order to achieve their actual goal, which it turns out is arresting Quark for violations of their intellectual property. <laughs> um, specifically, there is a dramatic scene in which um, Quark's special replicators that he has apparently in his franchised bars um, is opened up and some Karama components spill out, um, which is, you know, the Karama point to and say, aha, those are our components. And Quark, like any innocent person uh, accused of patent infringement, shouts, well, it was really my code that made them special. <laughs> um, very dramatic. Uh, I don't believe it is specifically specified whether um, it is uh, which kind of intellectual property it is, but there are at least two kinds that are most obviously implicated, and I'll try to talk somewhat briefly about both because there's more to talk about in this episode, and then we have a whole other episode to get to. Um, I could talk, I'm sure you know, Josh, a long time about intellectual property, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. <laughs> um, so first, let's assume that the Karama, when they're referring to their intellectual property, are talking about patents. Now, I think most people have some uh, concept of what a patent is, um, but I will just very briefly describe uh, a patent is essentially um, a, uh, a, an exclusive, a right to exclude others from using or making or selling some, some kind of new technology. It could be a method. Um, it could be uh, an actual device or a system that you have invented. Um, and in exchange for writing up a long patent disclosure, uh, you get to essentially exclude others from performing or using that thing uh, for 20 years, after which your well-written disclosure of your invention becomes public knowledge and other inventors and academics can now build on top of it. Um, so for the sake of this discussion, I'm going to assume that the Karama have a valid non-expired patent um, on the components in question. So I won't get into, for example, statutory requirements for patents and things like that, because um, Quark does not immediately question the validity of those patents. Uh, however, it should be noted uh, that patents do not apply extraterritorially. So if you have a US patent, you can't go to Japan and sue them for patent infringement in Japan. And conversely, if you have a Japanese patent, you can't show up in the US and uh, sue someone for patent infringement in the US of your Japanese patent. You have to, you can however get a US patent uh, based off of your Japanese patent. There are various rules um, for, you know, tying priority dates to each other, but long story short, you generally can get the US patent if you actually invented it in Japan and vice versa. Um, but so, Here's so here's the thing. I think it is actually a little dubious that the Karama actually have a Federation patent. Um, it's it's you know kind of the background context for this episode is that there are not significant formal relations between uh, the Federation and the Karama, um, and it would be it would surprise me. Let's just say if the Karama had actually applied for a Federation patent prior to showing up to try to arrest Quark. Um, uh, but let's just assume that they did. Let's assume that they applied for and got issued a Federation patent for these components. Uh, what, what then? What, what, what does Quark have to say then? Um, so first, I will note briefly that um, in U.S. law, uh, patent infringement carries only civil liability. Um, uh, you can only be on the hook for money, and you can't be arrested or put in jail. Um, 
so I would I would cast doubt on the idea that Quirk could be arrested at all for patent infringement, except that it has been established in Star Trek canon that patent infringement carries the death penalty. This of, I'm speaking, of course, as I'm sure every patent litigator who loves Trek knows of uh, the original series, season two, episode eight, I Mud. Uh, in which Harry Mudd says that he is on the run from uh, to being put to death for violating various patents. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it the Vulcans who have the death penalty for? Oh, is that right? Was it Vulcan patents? I I, I should double check, but I remember the death penalty for patent infringement. I was like, that's a it's the logic based society that has the death penalty for that. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so I guess in the Federation, uh, uh, we'll, 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 we'll fact check whether or not this was strictly pre-Federation Vulcan or whether it was Federation. <laughs> um, but it seems that you probably could get arrested in the Federation for patent infringement. Weird little sort of uh, a quirk in Federation law that they probably should iron out. Um, but so let's 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 glide over that since he may be properly on the hook for for apparently criminal liability. Uh, assuming we're more in the U.S. scheme of things, which is usually what we assume as the proxy for Federation law, though, um, Quir uh, Quark has a number of defenses. The classic defenses to for a person who's accused uh, or a company who's accused of patent infringement are first non-infringement, second invalidity, and three lack of damages. In other words, number one. I didn't make or use your patented technology. Number two, even if I did, your patents are bad and should be invalidated. Uh, and number three, even if uh, I did infringe your patents and even if they are valid, uh, I don't owe you any money. Um, so those are the three basic defenses in your classic patent litigation case. Now, Quark's immediate reaction to them opening up his special replicator and the components spilling out um, is, no, 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 it's all the code that I put in there that made them special. <laughs> Um, which suggests to me that Quark is essentially conceding both infringement and validity here. He's skipping straight to the third and what should be the last line of defense, which is damages. Um, so I'll save detailed discussion of uh, non-infringement and invalidity for another day, since I don't think it's going to help Quark here. Uh, and instead, just talk about um, uh, the issues of damages defenses that are presented here. Uh, so in patent litigation, there are two basic theories of damages. Um, there's one, what's called a reasonable royalty, and two, lost profits. So lost profits is not likely to be an issue here. Uh, the Karama, in order to get lost, what's termed lost profits, would have to show that they make a product using the same patented technology that they have a patent on uh, and that quarks you know uh, use of uh, unlicensed use of this technology um uh somehow competes with uh this product or service that the karama also offer right so essentially they would have made more profit off of their own product or service except that quark was off here using an uh their product uh, or their technology in an unlicensed way and drew customers away um uh since quark was wasn't selling his special replicators, uh, the Karama would have to essentially be operating bars or restaurants or entertainment lounges that serve drinks. Um, given the Karama's characterization, especially in Deep Space Nine, as more of commodity traders um, or technology traders, it seems unlikely. So we're gonna, I'm going to assume lost profits are off the table here. 
So the other one that I mentioned is a reasonable royalty, um, which is basically what Quark would have paid in the form of a license had he actually sat down and negotiated with the Karama for the use of their patented technology um, at the outset which he should have done so, assuming he infringes in their valid patents. Um, on this subject, this is what Quark's immediate reaction is going to. It's going to a legal concept called patent apportionment. Um, essentially, Quark, in a single exclamation, is arguing that the value of his special replicators came entirely or primarily or in large part from the code he allegedly wrote uh, for the replicator, not the Karama components. Um, now, it was kind of funny. <laughs> But it actually isn't entirely crazy. Um, so, for example, uh, an iPhone has uh, nearly 200 distinct components. Undoubtedly, some of them are patented. Um, and so, you know, it would be a bit of a stretch to suggest that a single component in there, um, even if it infringed someone's patent, is responsible for all of the profits that uh, Apple would have derived from selling that iPhone. Um, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of parts, <laughs> and this is just one of them. Um, and so here, you know, Quark is, is, is essentially arguing uh, that this component, well, he's arguing is responsible for none of the profit. He's probably not going to win on that. Um, but what he would be able to do under the doctrine of patent apportionment is require the Karama's damages expert, when they get up and offer their report and opinion on how much uh, Quark should have to pay uh, the Karama, uh, the legal doctrine of patent apportionment says that that expert will have to apportion out the damages um, to reflect only the incremental value offered by that patented component. Um, so it will undoubtedly reduce the amount of money that Quark may be on the hook for. Uh, it's probably not going to eliminate all of it, uh, just given what we see in the show. Um, so th that's my thesis under patent law. Quark um, uh, may be in some trouble assuming the Karama managed to get a Federation patent. <laughs> Um, uh, and given that he is reacting as though he is conceding two of the most important defenses for patent infringement, um, but he may be able to reduce his damages significantly. Um, Josh, any further thoughts or should I move on to trade secrets? So just a, a issue of a clarification since it's been a long time. And I, Mud, Mud was, uh, he sold rights to a Vulcan fuel synthesizer to Deneb five, and the, uh, that species convicted him of fraud and sentenced him to death. So it wasn't the patent infringement, it was the fraud. Yeah, but when- And we... it wasn't the Federation's law, it was this planet's law. <laughs> yeah, I still wanna go dig in this because uh, the, the patent infringement issue is interesting and it's been years since we watched it. I think we just have to rewatch the episode. <laughs> yeah, and- <laughs> It's a funny episode. It's delightful. Yeah, with androids that are all very attractive. And yeah, because that's what you would do if you had a planet of androids. Uh, or at least Harry Mudd. But yeah. uh, on top of that, uh, the Mark, our Mark, uh, spoke, about, Mark. Yeah, spoke about the patent infringement issue at one of our uh, panels in, in years past. So I'm curious... Um, if maybe memory beta didn't have it right. So, but well said, and uh, let's keep going because that was a pretty significant patent analysis. 
<laughs> I know, and this was my short version. Sorry, Josh. Um, I'll, I'll try to move relatively quickly through the other intellectual property protection that the Karama might be referring to here, um, which is trade secrets. So trade secrets is a different body of law that offers protection for commercially valuable proprietary information that offers a competitive advantage. Um, this is much broader than what is generally going to be protected by patent law. Um, uh, there are statutory requirements for, for what is eligible for a patent, um, and it's much narrower. Uh, trade secrets can cover, for example, um, manufacturing techniques, business strategies, customer lists, design concepts, and formulas such as secret recipes. So you couldn't patent, for example, Coca-Cola's precise uh, flavor formulation or the kernel's 11 secret herbs and spices. There's no new technology in that. Um, uh, they, so they wouldn't be patent eligible, but you could protect them as a trade secret. Now, in, uh, in the U.S., trade secrets are, secrets are protected by treaty, um, the Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, more commonly known as TRIPS, um, and by state law. Uh, there's also a federal law, the Defend Trade Secrets Act, which offers a federal cause of action uh, for trade secrets uh, violations claims, which essentially just gets you a way to get into federal court if you want to be. Um, but it doesn't preempt state laws on trade secrets. Uh, every state does have some form of trade secrets protection, although there's a few that still do it through common law rather than through statute. Um, but all but three states, uh, which are Massachusetts, Texas, and New York, if anyone is curious, uh, have adopted some form of what is called the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. It's just an attempt to sort of bring best practices and uniformity to trade secrets law. Um, and so I'm mostly going to be talking about the UTSA. The Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act also largely mirrors it. So it's pretty safe when you're talking about trade secrets law to talk about the Uniform Trade Secrets Act. So in some respects, trade secrets offers a lot more protection than patent law to the holder of proprietary information. As I mentioned before, trade secrets protects a much broader array of competitively advantageous things. Um, unlike a patent, you don't have to make a public disclosure of your trade secret, which would seem to defeat the purpose, obviously. Um, uh, they also theoretically don't have an expiry date. Um, patents are limited to only 20 years worth of protection. Um, and perhaps critical to the Karama here, for all the reasons I was talking about before in the patent law analysis, trade secrets apply extraterritorially. So a Japanese entity could have uh, uh, proprietary uh, information that is stolen and someone uses it in the United States and they could come and bring suit in the United States. Um, so the Karama wouldn't have to, you know, register, there's no such registry, a trade secret in the Federation to sue Quark under a Federation trade secrets law. Uh, but trade secrets law also has drawbacks compared to patent law. Um, a single disclosure, even inadvertent by the holder of the trade secret, will destroy that protection. Um, uh, so this is, for example, the very famous uh, missing iPhone prototype that got left at a bar in Palo Alto. Um, uh, a competitor may also independently develop the same valuable technique and you can't stop them or exclude them from from using that thing um uh and critical here for quark it is actually legal under trade secrets laws to reverse engineer um so you if you put out that iphone into the world um uh if it's if it's sold into general commerce um there is nothing at least in trade secrets law that prevents somebody from taking apart that iphone and figuring out what makes it so special um uh the utsa only protects against theft and uh, this is this is a quote from the uh, from the uh, uniform trade secrets act theft bribery misrepresentation breach or inducement of a breach of duty 
uh, to maintain secrecy or espionage through electronic or other means. It's essentially literally stealing the secret, uh, going into somebody's lab and stealing the formula, or going uh, hacking onto someone's server and downloading their customer list. Um, all of those things are violations of the Trade Secrets Act. But if you just put out a product uh, containing what you consider to be proprietary information into the flow of commerce, somebody can reverse engineer it. Um, so if the Karama have actually sold these components on the open market, they have essentially become part of the great material continuum <laughs> and can no longer be considered uh, anyone's proprietary information any longer. Um, but there are some ways that you can protect against or the Karama could protect against that um, instead of selling it just onto the open market. So, for example, it could be sold and then resold right and change hands. Um, they could sell it under a licensing arrangement. So if anyone's ever signed an end user license agreement, we all have. Uh, most of us don't read that. <laughs> um, uh, that's an example of a way that a company could ensure that its trade secrets are protected because you can put a contractual uh, uh, provision in that says, I agree when I use or buy this product that I will not reverse engineer it. <laughs> um, and similarly, if you sell it under even more protective uh, methods under a non-disclosure agreement in which you agree not to uh, reverse engineer and to not disclose any of the proprietary information contained in a program or a product or anything like that. Um, but those are all contractual violations and remedies rather than trade secrets. I, I wonder, since I'm not a patent attorney, he's copied their device or he at least bought their device and he's either duplicated or put originals in his uh, franchisees bars across the quadrant. He's passing it off as the Quark 2000, but it's his code that's making it, making tasty drinks. Is this like having the iPhone and then Quark developed the app for it? That's very popular. So he's not selling knockoff iPhones. He's using his app on their technology. It's still, a, it's still not good. There's still legal risk involved, but uh, it'd be interesting to know what the franchises that he has, are they, is it like, uh, like, like Subway where you're getting specific individuals to buy a Subway and they, they thus have the franchise or does he own them? Right, are they corporate owned essentially, yeah. Yeah, so, because if they're corporate owned, I think there's more defenses for him. And I say that not having done any legal analysis. I say that on uh, thinking that we could make an argument that, yeah, he had their tech. He didn't sell their tech to anyone. He had it in his restaurants and it was his code, his software that he used with their technology that was making a profit. I think you can argue that's, uh, there's still a problem that he's using their tech. There's no way around that. Uh, and he didn't get it lawfully as well. So like there are- I'm, I'm suggesting that he might have. If all they're talking about is trade secrets, he might have lawfully reverse engineered a Karama yeah. replicator. <laughs> but if he's using the, if he, I have, I got this, uh, either duplicated it or I had 20 of them, whatever the fact pattern is. 
but it's my tech, my, my software that's making it profitable. So it's a hardware versus software issue. I don't know if that would win the day. Um, and I think, Josh, you brought up an interesting um, uh, line of inquiry as well that even like assuming that it was actually a Karama replicator, not just Karama components in a replicator, <laughs> um, you know, set aside for the moment that he has argued that he, his code is what makes it tick. Um, but he has essentially slapped on a sticker that says Quark 2000 and is passing it off as his own special invention. There's some interesting uh, trademark problems there as well and false attribution um uh both statutory and potentially a common law um because there are sort of misattribution uh, uh claims that you can have even if you don't have a registered trademark um so that's interesting yeah and the idea of <laughs> or, or yeah. passing off there are definitely independent claims for passing something off as your own yeah so there's he does have legal risk i don't know if that should uh, amount to a disgorgement of 76% of, of his profits that he makes with those devices or from all of his franchises. So it's not just what he makes with that device. It's everything from every quarks. That's that a good point. I almost forgot to mention that. That does seem really excessive. <laughs> I hate to say it, but, uh, or I don't hate to say it, I suppose. I Well, I think he probably should properly be on the hook for something here, just given the facts that were presented in this episode. Uh, that's really excessive. Because like, when I was talking about apportionment, I'm just talking about the replicator. But like, when we're talking about what is he deriving his profits from? There's all kinds of activities that he's doing in which the replicator and the special drinks can only plausibly be a part of it. And there would be interesting sort of fact-based inquiries that you would have to present to the finder of fact, right? Be it a judge in a bench trial or a jury in a jury trial um, about whether or not customers are coming to Quarks and spending their money um, because of the, the, the this supposedly patented, let's say, feature, which is special replicator with that makes drinks, or whether they're primarily coming to Quarks because of the atmosphere, because of the Dabo, um, uh, and, and other things that Quarks offers besides the, the, the Quark 2000. <laughs> I would speculate, just based on Deep Space Nine, <laughs> that the Quark 2000 is, is probably not the primary driver of his business. No, it's Dabo, it's going to a Quarks, which is Figures heavily in Federation history at this point. Yeah, it, it's like, it's not just like going to a Dave and Buster's. Like, there's there's more to it. it it's like, ima imagine the most whiz-bang mini golf course you've ever been to. That's known in the, you know, from the Tri-County area that this is the place to go to play mini golf. There are other places you can go to play mini golf. This is the one that rocks. And... I, that that's an important factor because it, the replicator alone is not what sells this. It's the Quark's experience, which again goes to it should not be seventy six percent of his product. I just remembered the other, the last issue on patent litigation that I actually forgot to write down in my outline, but you just reminded me. So thank you, Josh, is willful infringement, which does increase your damages beyond what we would typically discuss with just sort of what is a fair um, valuation of what the patented technology was giving you. Um, and in this case, it kind of seems like Quark probably knew that he was violating patents. 
Yeah, and I mean, there are the intentional acts that can get like treble damages. Exactly. Yeah, it's so because we want to deter that behavior. Uh, but there's, yeah, I would like to research it more. Uh, but I, I do think you've been pretty damning in your analysis that yes. he, he's in a lot of trouble. And you, you actually can be on the hook for up to three times the damages that would ordinarily be assessed if you are found to have willfully <laughs> infringed a patent. Now, willfully means like that you knew that this was a patented technology. You were aware of the patent and you did it anyway. <laughs> how's, how's infringement defined? So let, let's talk about the basic element of how, how it's is essentially it make user sell. So you don't have to be selling Karama components or selling a Karama replicator, but, but if he, it. he's using it. <laughs> And he never paid a licensing fee. So that's what it appears. Yep. So yeah. So that not only never paid a licensing fee, as you as you just suggested, Josh, was passing this off as his own invention. Yeah, there's all kinds of problems there. Uh that that this does sound like treble damage territory. So uh, now but... sorry, thank you for reminding me. That is why we maybe arrived at 70% of this profit. So maybe 76% of the profit is actually a good deal as opposed to 300% of the profit uh, where you're just hemorrhaging money. So making a quarter is better than zero, uh, but I would- At least still, he's still viable, yeah. Yeah, but again, that goes to all profits from his franchises versus profits from the Quark 2000. I think there, there's a line to draw there and it would be, it'd be worth doing the tracing to see what the profit comes from. Are people coming in and getting root beer that's not coming from the Quark 2000 or Kinar, or is right. it is it something that he's come up with that's like his equivalent of the Flaming Moe's that's you know, tasty and people want and, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, it's like, Saki and cherries, like something that you don't expect. Uh, that it's like, is that good or is it horrible? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, would you put grenadine in sake? Uh, I think that'd be gross. I don't know the answer, but because I've never done that, because mm -hmm. it doesn't sound like a good idea. Uh, <laughs> but again, there there are bartenders experimenting all the time with. Hey, this could be tasty. Or does someone, you know, turn blue right away from from having it in their system? But know. yes, ha having even having just remembered to discuss willful infringement and trouble damages, I would still be skeptical of this damages calculation <laughs> under the what I still think is a fairly safe assumption that, like you were talking about, Josh, I think the result of the factual inquiry, unless the jury or the judge really gets it wrong, is probably going to be that this was not a big driver of, of revenue and profits. Yeah, they're out there playing Dabo. And as we can see from Boimler at the end of it, he raids that gift shop, getting fake lobes and other goodies showing his geek flag and like, no, I need this, even though I sleep in a hallway and don't really have storage. You know, he, he went home with toys. And how much that that's not driven by the Quark 2000. That's driven by people want the t-shirt and the fake ears. So they're and being able to say they got a drink at Quark's. 
Yeah. It's, did you, did, oh God, I'm afraid of this answer because it's going to show age. Back in the olden times, at the Hilton in Las Vegas before they blew it up, there was the Star Trek experience where you could go have a drink. I've heard drink. tell. Are you too young to remember that? I definitely am. I'm I'm sorry, Josh. <laughs> at least like I have heard of it and I wish I could have done it, but it was gone before at least I was eligible to drink. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Uh, so there was there was like the 3D experience where you were either uh, an ancestor of Picard or uh, you know, you get rescued by Janeway from the Borg and all all the Borg one was a lot of fun. <laughs> You get to see Voyager blow stuff up. Um, so all good, all good. And then you could go have, you know, blood wine or, you know, in in the bar that had you know, a giant model of the Enterprise, and the, the uh, refit from motion picture and other trinkets. And it was glorious. But I'm an old man, and uh, you don't remember that. So that, that no. <laughs> there was a golden time in the early 2000s. It was it was pretty 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 amazing. Anywho, uh, you didn't see that, but again, we would go there for that experience. Definitely. And I wouldn't go to Vegas otherwise. I'm in the market <laughs> for that experience. If anyone else wants to bring it back, but <laughs> oh it, yeah, it's. When you look at what Disney's done today for Galaxy's Edge, yep. and there isn't anything like that for Star Trek that I know of, uh, that that would be a... Okay, there are the pop-up bars. There's the 10 But that's different. <laughs> very different. It's a very different experience. It was still tasty. Uh, Steven and I went to that at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, inadvertently did day drinking, and lived to tell the tale. And then, like, you know, again, they had people dressed as an Andorian, another as a Vulcan science officer. And it was just, it was a nice experience. Um, we need more of that. And it needs to be more than just LA. So, uh, anyway, but people go for the experience. Now, let's talk about the arrest. And uh, you have quite the amazing legal mind with. Uh, <laughs> analysis that you wrote that we could just turn this into a blog post maybe change some of the uh inflection points but this is glorious with the i can keep it as short as possible but the reason why Whoa. i had a bunch of analysis on this was actually because this is something that seems to come up a lot in sci-fi so like <laughs> just just go yeah. Just, well, just, I'll just say this, this has come up before in Star Trek, but this has also come up like in the Orville and other shows um, where there seems to be a little bit, a little bit of a disconnect, perhaps, between the writers uh, and, and an understand a deep understanding of international law and extradition. Um, so I'll just I'll just try to cover it very briefly. Uh, uh, long story short. What the Karama are doing here in supposedly, and I'm for anyone who's only listening and not watching, I'm putting it in scare quotes, arresting Quark. <laughs> 
even assuming in, in the Federation that you can arrest someone for intellectual property violations, which, like I said, I, I think there, like, there, there may be a canonical death penalty. So sure, let's say you can arrest someone. Um, what the Karamar are doing is completely uh, extrajudicial. It's what um, it, it's what lawyers might call ultra vires or outside, you know, way beyond the law. Um, they, are, they are outlaws here. And so let me, let me explain. Basically, uh, I think it is very safe to assume, given the limited amount of relationship between the Karama and the Federation, that there is no extradition treaty. Um, the United States doesn't have an extradition treaty with every country, even countries that has pretty friendly relationships with. Um, uh, it, it, it's a very intimate sort of bond that two countries can have in which uh, you, it, it's, it's limited not just by how closely they feel allied, but also how closely aligned their justice systems are. Um, and for example, it, it, there can be relatively small but important differences. I don't know if I'm phrasing that quite right. But so, for example, there's limited extradition between the France and the U.S. because France doesn't uh, uh, condone the death penalty, for example. Um, so even between very close justice systems, there can be enough of a disconnect to mean that you don't really have extradition. So it is far-fetched, I think, to suggest that the Karama, who only recently uh, came out from under Dominion rule and didn't seem that unhappy with it, uh, have a, a legal system that is so close to the federations that they might have a extradition treaty. Um, so, uh, okay. So what's an extradition treaty? <laughs> Very briefly, an extradition treaty is when uh, nation A requests that nation B uh, remit into nation A's custody, meaning literally arrest them, put them on a plane and, or, or a bus and send them to uh, nation A, a citizen of nation B, or perhaps like someone who has sought asylum there or is otherwise a lawful resident of nation B, who's been accused of committing crimes in nation A. Uh, and nation um, uh, uh, B would be uh, required to do so under an extradition treaty, assuming that the treaty's conditions are met and that all of its procedures are followed. Um, absent such a treaty, now this is pretty critical, if you don't have an extradition treaty between nation A and nation B, it is wildly illegal <laughs> for nation B to nonetheless round up one of its citizens and I mean, it's essentially deport them uh, to nation A to face whatever their legal system might be. Um, and this unfortunately has happened a couple times in recent sci-fi writing. And it's you know pretty nakedly suggested that it's because it is very diplomatically convenient to do so. Um, uh, and that's just not how the law works. It would be a wild violation of, of, of at least in the US, constitutional rights. Um, you know, We all have one of our basic fundamental rights is that we can't be uh, deprived of life, liberty um, or property without due process of law. Part of due process of law means there has to be a lawful basis for depriving someone of it, not just following procedures, but there it's also following procedures, but there also has to be a lawful basis. You have to have you have to have a, a probable cause to arrest someone. You have to have a warrant to search someone's house, all those kinds of things. So you have to have a lawful basis to arrest somebody, uh, period much less deport them. <laughs> um, and in this case, if you don't have an extradition treaty, you don't have a legal basis. Now, an extradition treaty essentially is a very important exception to that because treaties are right up there with the Constitution as the law of the land. So this is Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, which reads, this Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, 
and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the constitution or laws of any state to the, contra uh, to, uh, to the contrary notwithstanding. So it overrides any anything the states do, basically. So treaties are right up there <laughs> with the constitution, uh, this constitution as the law of the land. Uh, so if the United States has a treaty, that is a potential lawful basis. Uh, but without that, no. Then the last thing here, Josh, even if there was an extradition treaty, this ain't how you do it. <laughs> uh, an extradition treaty does not give nation A the right to send its agents onto nation B's soil or its otherwise jurisdiction, right? Because this is deep space nine, which is federation jurisdiction um, to seize and then, you know, secret across the border, <laughs> the citizen of nation B that it wants to try for various crimes in its own justice system. Um, this violates really core tenets of international law concerning sovereignty, territorial integrity, all of that stuff. Um, and there are real world analogies for this. Some of them are really dark. So, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia has an unfortunately pretty well-known practice of forcibly kidnapping dissidents who are lawful residents um, of other countries <laughs> uh, uh, in order to uh, uh, unlawfully return them to Saudi Arabia uh, to face, uh, you know, imprisonment, torture, or even death uh, in, in their criminal justice system. Um, uh, it's a, a interesting analogy that isn't as... Um, morally problematic, uh, but is still in violation of international law, is Israel's historical practice um, uh, in the second half, uh, following World War II for a number of, uh, of years of um, essentially, I mean, essentially doing a similar thing of hunting down and kidnapping um, former Nazis to return them to Israel to face trial for war crimes. <laughs> um, uh, you know, granted, once they got them to to Israel, the, the, the trials were public and were very publicized. But the actual operations to uh, essentially uh, kidnap these people was entirely covert. And it's because there is nothing in international law that permits this. It is a serious violation of international law. Israel knew it was doing so when it did this. It was just that important to Israel. <laughs> um, so morally, perhaps correct. Legally, not allowed. <laughs> Yeah, it makes a good to to go hunt Nazis, and because I don't think they're former Nazis, you know. Yes, yes, I yeah, I, they, I, agree. I agree. If you're hiding out in Argentina, um, and because that's where all the Nazis went to go live, just like the Confederates did in 1865 after they lost, there's a really messed up tradition of that's where they. You know, again, Confederates who went to war for slavery and the Nazis who went to war for racial purity and fascism both went to Argentina. And I, I should I should clarify that it, it like Israel's practice was not hunting down anybody who had ever been a member of the Nazi party that encompassed a lot of people who may not have actually been supporters. Yeah, it's, it's We're talking about real war, war criminals. Yeah. Yeah. They, these are, you know. We're talking uh, about Eichner. Yeah, at Mangala, you know, going for finding those guys. Uh, that said, like for an extradition example, Roman Polanski, bad man, been hiding in France and avoiding countries with extradition treaties with the United States because we're mad at him for what he did. And he's been on the run since I think the 70s. So again, uh, 
go make movies in France. Good job. <laughs> uh, so, but again, we haven't sent a team from, you know, the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department to France to bring him back to the United no, States. No, even though we're well aware of where he is. <laughs> yeah, we know we would like to get him. We can't. So it's why, uh, was it, um, WikiLeaks, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, Julian Assange? Yes, yes. Yeah. White hair. Um, uh, South Park did great fun with uh, uh, Lemmy Winks and WikiLeaks, but that that was uh, with the mouse with it. Yeah, beautiful, great parody. Uh, but like we just, we have rules and we follow them. And so we don't want raiding parties to go collect someone short of like a full-blown terrorist and then we're right then we're normal well, there's also other international legal concepts at play when it comes to uh, someone who's actually you know committing acts of violence terrorism war <laughs> it's like they didn't order a drone strike on quark for patent infringement and i don't think they were initially looking for them for him because they start out with uh it looks like trade negotiations and i swear to god when when that species appeared in deep space nine and they were on the defiant i thought james cromwell played that that first representative that we saw um and you can work google and find out for sure while i stall for time uh but i i appreciated that um Love Armin Shimmerman and hearing him voice Quark once. You're yeah. right. Oh, you're totally right. Um, I, 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 I can't uh, fact check immediately whether or not it was the first appearance of a Karama, but the main Karama character in Deep Space Nine, a Hanuk, the Commerce Minister, uh, was in fact played by James Cromwell. Because he plays lots of track and God bless him for it. Uh, someone who's appeared lots <laughs> so also nicely done josh again sometimes my memory works uh so this was very well done now there there are other issues that we have here with piracy where you know you have uh some very weird cultural sensitivity dei type issues of uh, Tendi not wanting to be associated with having a pirate's life because there's some very negative baggage that comes with that. And then what turns out to be an Orion who grew up in Ohio um, just really wants to identify. Now, there's there are some, I think, messed up abortion, uh, uh, adoption laws. My mother was adopted. I'm a big fan of adoption because you should be raised by people who love you and want to care for a child. There's your family. You know, the biological people who didn't want to be parents aren't, aren't available to be parents. Uh, that, that doesn't lessen the, the childhood experience from those who say, no, I'm gonna sign up for this and raise a, raise a kid. So he wants to be a pirate. He's carrying, you know, the, the cultural key that oh, they he get. got a he got a religious exemption to carry it as an exception to the Starfleet uniform standards, which is kind of like Worf's sash 
type type of thing. Except uh, as it turns out, it's it's false. <laughs> Again, he might. So California, we're, we're going to have to call HR is all I'm saying. Yeah. But again, maybe he's trying to identify with his culture. Like there isn't anything wrong with that. I'm saying like, this is where I'm from and I want to identify with it. That's totally valid. The, the law used, I think still is, has a preference for placing a child with individuals to be the child's adopted parents who are of the same race and nationality. And I, I'm not a fan of that because it goes against the principle of here are people who want to love a child and raise the child. And you're going to say they're the wrong nationality. And therefore we want a child growing up with somebody who they look like. And I just, I find that offensive uh, because that shouldn't be the deciding factor on whether or not you get to adopt a child and raise the child as your own uh, because there are plenty of kids who are trapped in foster care that need a home. It shouldn't matter the color of their parents or if it's two mommies or two daddies. It should be they go where there will be somebody that will love them and raise them. So that's why I think the Orion being raised by humans in Ohio I okay. think that's charming. Yeah. It's like, I loved wharf parents too. Like <laughs> they were adorable, doting human parents. Yeah, who who did their best to help Worf embrace his culture of where he was from. So Worf like knew about being a Klingon. They didn't hide that from him. They also knew it was a contact sport and racing a Klingon child. So like they were pretty uh, pretty brave uh, in that regard. And thus, Worf is a child of two worlds from, you know, where he grew up and then the massacre that happens and then the people who adopt him and become his adoptive parents with an adopted brother and uh, just highlights family can be very broad and have many meanings. Uh, but then we get to see uh, Tendi show that she did learn a lot from dad and just commandeers a ship now is was that this, was this the tendy the cleaner came out basically yeah it's in the, the uh was it the mistress of the winter constellation yeah it's oh that's how she got the name just gonna let her be in charge don't upset her uh her actions governed by necessity they thought they were rescuing Quark, who's being kidnapped. So they're trying to stop a kidnapping. Who is being kidnapped, I'm pretty, yeah. like I was explaining. They're, the, the Karama do not have any protections or immunities because they are not law enforcement officers and they are not acting subject to valid legal process. Yeah, they didn't show up with a warrant, which we have seen on DS9 at least twice. So we've... This that is a kidnapping. More. I think even yeah. if it weren't, you're right, there's necessity and we can continue to walk through that, but I think this is a kidnapping. So they're acting under the necessity defense and in probably a touch of self-defense as well and defense of a third party and trying to save Quark, who's, you know, they don't like what's going on. And so use of force by tending. She doesn't kill anyone. 
she does extract a man's tooth. There, there's a mutilation element there that's pretty intense. I don't know if she knew she needed the tooth in order to... Oh, I interpreted, I totally interpreted that she already had a plan and this is what she needed. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she did. I'm going to, uh, I wasn't sure how much she was winging it and going, I need to get to the bridge and stop this. Or I know I'm going to need a piece of metal in order to do it. And this guy's tooth will do just fine. But it does raise a mutilation element that's like, is that... Did that cross the line uh, for the use of force? And I had to extract this tooth and then I kept it. Uh, I'll just say that in this particular instance, I feel like Starfleet might be wise to make a settlement. (laughs) Just for that one dude, no no one else. She did what? (laughs) When they read the report, okay, good, good. Whoa. (laughs) Totally. I can hear him scream like there's that. Wow. You, you go girl. That's terrifying on so many levels that, you know, I'm not entirely sure which way it'll go legally, but it was extremely badass. No, no, I fear you doing that. So again, it's, uh, I mean, I can see you yanking out an incisor. So like, it's, uh, uh, I I live with that. I will take that as a compliment. Don't make her mad. So, uh, <laughs> so again, brilliant, super funny. Uh, Rutherford just in awe. <laughs> again, the engineer. Whoa, I did not see that coming. <laughs> so, uh, but I think, I think justified. Uh, which now brings us uh, to any closing parts from our Deep Space Nine adventure. Oh, just that I loved that they had Morn in the bar. (laughs) That was one of my favorite random parts of Deep Space Nine was every time they would walk in and this character who never spoke a word on camera would be like someone would be sitting next to the bar uh, next to him and be like, I'm so moved by what you just said. Subtle humor. It's like we've never heard him speak and they make him sound like he's a chatterbox that won't shut up. So... Nicely done. Uh, the fact that you know Kira's tossing around Cisco's baseball, nice, good little homage. The shacks and Kira, uh, Kira, who saved who, with their cultural view on who owes who for saving somebody's life, um, fascinating little change. That was great. I mean, I just. No, I owe you my life. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in a in a resistance has to be hard. So very well done and in nice humor as well. Which I think moves us to Peanut Hamper. And I I really like this episode, but I also had problems connecting with it at times. Uh, and I, I can't explain why, uh, other than the homages that they did and the uh, bravery in being that creative is noteworthy with we're going to have a completely different intro. What we're going to do is going to be extremely different. And we're going to tie back to 
uh, the end of season one. All good. Now let's, we both did some issue spotting in this that Peanut Hamper is concerned with being AWOL. I think it's more like being, you know, desertion in the face of the enemy, but you know, let's not split too many hairs here. So AWOL is absent without leave. It's under the uh, U, uh, the United uh, uh, Code, United States Code of Military Justice, 86. And there are different levels of it that the accused can uh, failed without authority to go to his appointed place of duty at the time prescribed, goes from that place or absence himself uh, from his unit organization or place of duty when he's supposed to be there. And the levels of it could be you know, like gone for more than three days, more than 30 days, unauthorized absence from a guard watcher duty. Uh, so, and there's, there's other levels of it as well. And there's desertion where any commissioned officer of the armed forces who after tender of his resignation uh, and before notice of its acceptance, quits his post or proper duties without leave and with intent to remain away from there from permanently is guilty of desertion. And this is issues for Thomas Harper on the, you know, whether or not, you know, the, the wayward soldier who uh, deserted in Afghanistan and was hanging out with the Taliban more that's desertion um you could get them for both um and with yeah her, with her I, she, I think it's desertion what are your thoughts so um i i think yeah i think this is probably this is probably both <laughs> um uh she definitely thinks she has left starfleet so she's in her mind it's permanent um she's but you know also under UCMJ Article 86 for AWOL, she's definitely been gone, it sounds like, a really long time based on the fact that she has her own Wilson <laughs> um, and so felt the need to, as a robot to do that. So I'm going to assume this is a super long time. Um, so I would I would guess that you would probably charge her with all of it. I think you're right, Josh, also. Um, you know, the manner in which she deserted is also probably implicates Article 99, misbehavior before the enemy. Um, all of these carry increasing <laughs> penalties. Um, I mean, if I were Starfleet, this was such a flagrant act. I would probably hit her with all of them. Um, there's also one more that I wanted to mention, and it involves both her initial desertion and then towards the end of the episode, she she does it very clearly, which is just refusal to follow an order from a, a, an order from a superior officer. So the first time, it's actually not clear if the suggestion, the idea had been translated yet to an order. I think it's arguable that Tendi was her superior officer and her saying you should go save the ship was an order to go save the ship. Um, but certainly by the end of this episode, when Captain Freeman literally says, Ensign, come back here. That's a direct order. And she refuses. At that point, you're also on the hook uh, uh, for that one, um, uh, which is, I believe, Article 92. So there, there's a lot at issue here. Um, uh, um, a lot of this does carry uh, jail time. Um, so, for example, AWOL being over 30 days that you mentioned, there's sort of different gradations. Um, uh, that is subject to dishonorable discharge and a year of confinement. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, and, and desertion and misbehavior in front of the enemy all carry even more severe penalties. We used to punish uh, some of those things by death. We no longer do. <laughs> um, but those used to be capital crimes. Um, so, yes, this is very serious stuff. I think she may be on the hook for all of it. 
Yeah. And not just all of it, but it harkens back to one of the next gen episodes where Troy was doing uh, a Kobayashi Maru type type command exercise. And she kept failing it because she realized the answer was you send Jordy into his death in order to save the ship. Tendi arguably was crossing into that and making the right decision and saying like, hey, you, you get to go save the ship. Now it's not quite an order because here's a group of individuals who are all willing to go do things for the greater good, who understand the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And uh, you have somebody who's a coward and, and not a team player. Now, did Tendi order her, peanut hamper, to go uh, uh, take over the Packlid ship and deliver, you know, the the virus? Uh, close to it. Uh, I think it's. I think it's certainly colorable. Yeah, it's absolutely colorable. I mean, like it's it's more than a suggestion. Uh, and but she's not asking. She says, "You get to go save the ship." Mm-hmm. that's that's different all of that said you know peanut hamper abandoned ship and yeah it is a stupid name and uh don't respect that life choice it's a bad one um people are allergic to peanuts uh anyway so why why do that she did we then have, uh, she has to be out there for months because I didn't freeze the frame to see where she's making the, the notch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But, it's, but it's, it looked, it's a lot of days. It's probably a couple months of being out there. And, you know, just think of working from home during COVID. There were people who did not handle that well of being stuck in their apartments and especially those who live alone uh, with how taxing that can be. That's it. Uh, she does make an escape. Uh, we do see she has very strong self-preservation that includes she, she's willing to sacrifice the imaginary friend. Yeah, this is instead of Wilson, it's uh, fuck you, Wilson. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, we now get to add explicit. So didn't know you had that in you. Oh, um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> people now know. Uh, all of that said. Can you bleep that out in post? Oh, no, no, it stays. It's part of you now. Uh, just toughen this episode up. <laughs> <laughs> About the cartoon droid. So she's, she's a very, very bad uh, little little robot now her getting going native with the uh avian species that she's uh joins the the flock uh we we end up being able to discuss marriage equality because it raises can you marry a robot and which is a nice way to talk about some of the marriage cases that we have that actually are substantive due process. And uh, so you get, let's start with loving. So there were states that used to. I think uh, loving, by the way, was 
both a substantive due process and equal protection. It stands independently on both. Which is probably why Thomas didn't mention it as one of the cases he wants to knock out. Well, yeah, I mean, under the critique of if you have a a legal critique of substantive due process as sort of a line of cases, this one independently stands on equal protection. So that that would make sense. Yeah. Uh, Also, you are an interracial couple. You shouldn't argue against that. But that's just uh, that'd be my recommendation for a life choice. But uh, so with loving. Virginia had a law that said uh, African-American and and white people can't get married. That was the law of the land. And there were other states across the South. Yeah, this was not the only state doing it. No, no. Uh, It was two very brave people in Virginia that said, let's challenge this bad boy because it's wrong. And uh, so this is, what, 65? Uh, it's sometime in the 1960s, so we're Warren Court, and it gets struck down. And boy, does it get struck down <laughs> uh, for saying no, 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 no. 1967. You were very close. Very okay. Good. So um, I have one of the quotes from it. <clears throat> uh, this is from my article from Wanda Vision with Can the Scarlet Witch and the Vision Legally Get Married? So I have thought about, can you marry a robot before? Because it's good to have options. So uh, the, the loving case, uh, the law at issue said, you know, this was the punishment. If any white person intermarry with a colored person or a colored person intermarry with a white person, he shall be guilty of a felony and shall be punished by confinement uh, in the penitentiary for not less than one nor more than five years, a felony. Chief Justice Earl Warren penned the opinion and it was unanimous striking this thing down. Uh, There is patently no legislative overriding purpose independent of vindictive, wow, vindictious? racial discrimination which justifies this classification. The fact that Virginia prohibits only interracial marriages involving white persons uh, demonstrates that the radical classifications must stand on their own justification as measures designed to maintain white supremacy. We capitalized white supremacy. We have consistently denied the constitutionality of measures with restrictions which restrict the right of citizens uh, on account of race. There can no doubt uh, be no doubt that restricting the freedom to marry solely because of racial classification violates the central meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. So as you said, equal protection. It's, is- it's in both, though. It is sort of one of the early subst- like uh, important substantive due process. There, there's some, I think, other ones that might be a little bit earlier regarding right to travel and other things. But that's this is one of the most well-known as sort of the start of what we currently consider to be substantive due process. Yeah. And then which then goes to uh, the, the contraceptive cases. And so there, there's a lot that happens here. Other half of marriage equality that that crosses into the 21st century were the prohibitions on uh, gay marriage. And uh, in the uh, Oberfeld, the Hodges case. Uh, A Burgerfell. 
Okay, I should have pronounced it. At uh, least that is how I've always heard it pronounced. I've never met the person. <laughs> yeah, it's neither have I. It's a Justice Kennedy case. Uh, there. Uh, here's the quote, and then I'll talk about some of the, the California cases because I, I saw a CLE with the, the plaintiffs and saw some of the arguments, and it was amazing to hear them. So Justice Kennedy came up with a, a four-part uh, test where they looked at the issues of um, saying that you should not discriminate against uh, same-sex uh, couples who want to get married. And the right to personal choice regarding marriage is inherent, and the concept of individual autonomy, the right to marry is fundamental because it supports a two-person union unlike any other in its importance to the committed individuals. The right to marry is, is that it safeguards children and families, thus drawing meaning from related rights of childbearing, procreation, and education. And marriage is a keystone of our social order. Turning to this episode, we have the prince decides that he wants to marry Peanut Hamper. Peanut Hamper seems down with it as well. Their courtship is kind of disturbing. That's yes, that's that's the nice way to put it. <laughs> I was like, I... But your parts are so different from my parts. I was just going to have to wing it. I was like, oh, I didn't need any of this. Um, well, there we go. Can you marry a robot in this society the answer is yes because they respected peanut hammer camper as an individual as a life form and there was like no hesitation there weren't any protests saying you can't marry a robot no they seem to have dealt with the trouble in their society over whether or not an artificial life form is a person in the earlier part of the episode uh, after she went around healing people and things like that and they saw her interactions um they seem to have resolved that issue um i will say within our current legal system i'm not sure that you can do this or or let me rephrase it i think that a state may be able to withhold a marriage license if you put for example uh under the current state of technology at least um i'm trying to think what's that uh dolly for example the the ai that's making all of the art right now <laughs> i i don't think a state would accept that license and i'm not sure that a court is going to force them to and yeah. it's and it's just because, you know, for one, our technology is probably not to the point that, you know, the AI that we have and the robots that we have should be recognized as, as people. Um, but there may someday be coming sort of a fight in the law, kind of like we had with data, right, the measure of a man and things like that, um, to get um, proper recognition for legal rights of artificial uh people for lack of a better term um or a different term um i just i don't know that we're there yet some people might argue that we are but um you know in the case of peanut hamper and in star trek we, it's just kind of a given that this uh, artificial entity is so advanced this is post data right we, we they've already achieved artificial self-awareness um so it's just kind of, it's generally assumed that she is uh so you know in the sense of that you know uh even Obergefell is limited to what is legally considered uh, a person. Um, and currently in our law, we don't typically, we don't define person um, as, a, as a machine or as an AI, at least not yet. No, 
because we are not there. The technology is not there. There are creepy love bots with that say, I gave up on trying to interact with people of the office. Yes. Oh. That's a thing. If there's going to be a robot uprising, it will happen from them. Uh, yeah, it won't yeah, be. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that. No, it's, it's going to be sex bots who rise up and kill their oppressors. So just say no. Just say no. Uh, yeah, this is, we don't have it in our society because even, even if that algorithm that, that was being debated about, was it sentient? That's one thing. And the jury's still out on, is that a life or not? It's a weird, weird thing. 50 years from now, we might be in a different place. Totally. Um, and so I just want to emphasize that, you know, the, the thing that is currently standing in the way of a marriage license with a robot is is not, uh, you know, that we don't have sufficient non-discrimination um, recognition. Um, you know, we, 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 we definitely have a long line of cases. Um, you can you can locate it under substantive due process. You can locate it under equal protection. You can locate it, as Thomas does, under privileges and immunities. But we've got it and it's not going anywhere. <laughs> um, uh, and that's not the obstacle. The obstacle is just that they those all of those constitutional rights, all of those rights against discrimination and things like that, um, apply to what the law considers a person. <laughs> um, this is why you also cannot marry your your pet. <laughs> um, uh, and you know, once we get to the point, um, I mean, we are like you said, Josh, we're already having some debates. But you know, fifty years from now, um, or 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 who knows, maybe earlier. But once we've gotten to the point that you know, you you can convince um, a jury, you can convince a judge, you can convince Congress um, that uh, there are these artificial life forms and that they should be legally recognized as people. All of the legal framework for non-discrimination is already in place. It's just recognizing um, an artificial life form as a person. Yeah, there's, I remember some article about a woman in Israel that wanted to marry a dolphin. That's weird. That if it did happen, there's been no increase in dolphin marriages to human beings. So again, we do draw lines for those who worry about, well, if, if gay people can marry, then bigamy is okay. And the answer is, no, it's not. We draw lines. You're right. You also can't marry three robots. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Nope. Uh-uh. You. Nope. Can't. No. So again, we draw lines all the time. There's a, you know, we, again, this goes by state, but like, you shouldn't marry a cousin. And we actually made laws about that. Uh, family reunions are not places to go mingle for, with singles. Uh, so no, 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 and no. So again, we draw lines all the time. We will keep drawing lines. There are other lines that do need to be drawn uh, when you look at child marriages. So like there's something that that is a societal problem that that needs to be addressed. Oh, but so, that's a very thorny and unpleasant topic that is less fun than talking about this episode, Josh. No, no, just highlighting that there are a lot of it's, laws it's a, with- Yes, yes. Lots of laws with marriages, um, which then brings us to Peanut Hamper's Betrayal. You did some some analysis on this. 
brilliant analysis looking at the outline. Talk me through this. Yeah. So the first thing that I thought of, and then we're going to get into more specifically about peanut hamper, uh, is so the scrappers show up. Um, they, you know, say that they have, uh, they claim the right of salvage over these ships that are just happen to be the foundation on which, uh, the Areolus, uh, Areolan city sits. Um, and then they force, you know, when the Areolans tell them to, uh, you know, uh, go away, you're not welcome to our relics. They then start forcibly removing them, destroying the city in the process. General mayhem ensues. People are injured. Property is destroyed. <laughs> um, horrible, horrible, horrible. We'll get into that in a second, Josh. The first thing I want to point out is when Starfleet shows up, the scrappers first claim that they were lied to by Starfleet. <laughs> uh, uh, they, they say that they were invited um, by Starfleet to come take the salvage. That They said that nobody would protest. Um, and they <laughs> play back a recording. They have the receipts. They play back a recording of Peanut Hamper inviting them to come take the ships as salvage and saying no one will resist. Um, sorry, did you have something to say? I just, I didn't want to cut you off. Let's talk about the admissibility of that recording in a minute, but let's, oh, continue. yeah, <laughs> not, not to unpack there, but let's keep going. Um, so, uh, I think I explained in an earlier episode in this season, um, what essentially the scrappers are doing here by saying in protest to Starfleet showing up and trying to stop them from taking the ships is that you told us we could come take the ships. Uh, they're essentially asking for, um, outside of court, obviously, they should they should just go to court. They shouldn't be doing all of this uh, force. And uh, I think, what did you say during our pre-show talk, Josh? Self-help, a big fat helping of self-help here. Um, but what they would be arguing if they were making this argument in court instead of with guns is they're essentially arguing for estoppel against the government. Um, and as I explained before, estoppel generally does not lie against the, the federal government. And that's because, you know, when, when Congress, for example, um, puts uh, together a, a nice pretty law with lots of different rules and qualifications that offer benefits to qualifying people, um, it is totally against the will of Congress and the law for the executive, for example, to nonetheless give benefits to a bunch of people that don't qualify. You have similar separation of powers issues if the courts step in and order the executive to give benefits to someone who is ineligible under the law for those benefits. Um, and similar logic applies, uh, I think this is when we were talking about it was with the recruiting uh, of Starfleet recruits. Um, similar um, legal analysis applies if a agent of the government, and let's just pretend for the moment that um, Peanut was a lawful agent of the government, she certainly was representing herself as one, um, promises you something that is actually against the law, right, or, or they're without legal authority to do. Um, and in this case, that's exactly what she did. Holding herself out as an agent to Starfleet, she promised uh, the salvagers something they were not legally entitled to that was uh, against uh, Federation law for them to come seize. Um, uh, and they are now saying we, we want it because you said we could have it. Um, that is exactly a classic um, case of trying to ask for estoppel against the government, meaning you're trying to argue, you can't now tell me I can't take these ships. Um, and that's just not how it works. Uh, so uh, at most, what the salvagers have here claims against Peanut, because she definitely fraudulently induced them to come to that planet. Um, uh, she probably doesn't have deep pockets, which is why I would bet the salvagers would try to sue Starfleet. Uh, but in any event, um, uh, 
her rep peanut and hamper's false representation here does not entitle the salvagers either to estoppel against the government or much less to use force to get the ships they believed they were promised they need to go to court yeah it's, you don't get to launch a war and which is what they did with we'll just wipe them out and then take it now peanut hamper is a complicated machine uh so is she though <laughs> she seems pretty driven by self-interest but sure are, are have you been practicing the voice that's uh very impressive what, what you do in your free time is uh, heroic so first off we get the recording that will be admissible on several grounds. So first, it's an out-of-court statement offered for, offered for the truth of the matter asserted. That makes it hearsay. How can it be admissible when we don't like hearsay? Well, there's something called statements against interest. And under the Federal Rules of Evidence, that's Rule 804B3A and B. Uh, a, a reasonable person in the declarant's position would have made only if the person believed it to be true, because when made, it was so contrary to the declarant's uh, proprietary or peculiar interest or had so great a tendency to invalidate the declarant's claim against someone uh, else or to expose the declarant to civil or criminal liability. Uh, and B is supporting by co uh, cooperating circumstances that clearly indicate its trustworthiness. If it is offered in a criminal case as one that tends to expose the declarant to criminal liability. So we then get into an issue of how is this trustworthy? And that goes to the issue of when they made the statement, they knew it was against their own interest. So it's like, you can tell by the facts. Yeah, this I agree. Is... I agree with you. I also think this could just be simple impeachment evidence. Um, but uh, I totally agree with you, Josh. Yeah, oh, good. That's nice to hear because uh, federal, federal rules of evidence are one of the things that I live for. Uh, it's, it, again, saved me lots of time not dating back in law school, but uh, it, it does provide hours of quality entertainment. So, fast forwarding. So we get the evidence that she told these guys, come on down, take it, because they're not going to resist. Bad. Very bad. Invited them to come down for a fight, and she intended to be the one to fight them in order to make herself look good so she could go back to Starfleet so she didn't have to live with the hillbilly bird people. Such a bad individual. <laughs> uh, not a lot of redeeming qualities there. So let's let's talk about all the crimes and civil liability. <laughs> yeah. Now we both did a little. Let's take the lead, please. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, I think the most interesting or simplest might also be a way to talk about this is to essentially list off without getting into too much detail some of the big things that she might be on the hook for um, and all of these things have both sort of you know criminal and civil sides um, and then getting into sort of you know within that I think the biggest topic to discuss is going to be um, causation 
um, and for, for both uh, arguably the criminal and, and, and the civil. Um, and so rather than sort of go through element by element, all of the things, because there was a lot that she might be on the hook for, um, I'll just lift some of them off. So there's um, wrongful death on the civil side, uh, murder or attempted murder on the uh, criminal side, um, assault, battery, which both have, uh, you know, civil and criminal uh, sides, destruction of property, vandalism, trespass, because there are people uninvited here. <laughs> Um, uh, and, and that's just for starters. I'm sure someone issue spotting this uh, in more depth could find way more, but that's just a good sort of greatest hits list. <laughs> um, uh, attempted genocide, I will just throw out there's another one. <laughs> but um, so all of these things that I've just listed off carry both civil and potentially criminal liability. Can anyone recover or could she go to jail? Yeah, oh, the answer, yes. And uh, yes, yes. So, boy, howdy! There's a lot to unpack on the the civil and criminal liability here. All of this is predicated upon a fraud, and where she's using the scrappers as her patsies mm -hmm. in order to look like a hero. There's fraud in. Uh, what she represents to the scrappers and there's in order to perpetuate a fraud against the flock that she's living with and marrying into so all bad so oh, we should have covered annulment there <laughs> go ahead <laughs> oh yeah yeah, because again, because the marriage is founded on a fraud as well so there it that is you can annul that and I don't know if they finished the ceremony. And even if they mm, didn't. Good catch. The other factor with the ceremony, she's, at least in our system, you still have to sign the paperwork. So even saying I do isn't enough. You need to sign the marriage certificate and it has to be witnessed and all that good stuff. So you have to comply with the forms requirement. Technically, Someone could get married and already be married at the time of the ceremony because they just did the paperwork like 20 minutes beforehand. Right, right. So like that could work. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but again, if there's, I haven't looked at a certificate in a long time, so I don't know if the oath requirement requires anything to be oral. Uh, so like you do the ceremony and then sign the paperwork in order for it to be valid. Or does the ceremony not even matter and it's just, a, you just have to do the paperwork, uh, which is, would suck the fun out of it, uh, I think, significantly, because it's like, oh, we just did this on a Tuesday. Uh, but I, there are judges who perform marriage ceremonies all the time. They would know more. So, uh, like Judge Matthew Serino, Superstorm Sandy in Knocking Out New York. He walked to his courthouse where he was, you know, supposed to do duty. And because he's the dedicated civil servant who would go to work because I'm a judge. I want to make sure justice is happening with the power out. And so while there, like hanging out in the dark and, and all that good stuff, there were a couple people that were supposed to get married that day. Oh. 
he performed the ceremony for them in the park across the street from the courthouse because that's the type of dude he is. Decent, and the type of people you want to be in a road doing good work every day. Uh, that's what we want. So that's a long way to talk about marriage with, yeah, I'm pretty sure this bad boy could get annulled real quick because uh, it sounds like it was fraudulently induced for the marriage. Ah, so bad, so bad. So, uh, but back to our criminal and or civil liability analysis. Yeah, there's a lot of fraud against the shipper, uh, scrappers, yes. But that falls apart pretty fast because they decide to attempt genocide. It's really hard. We're going to call that unclean hands. <laughs> yeah. The fraud, everyone, again, as you said, they should have gone to court as opposed to, what? What do you mean we can't have it? Darn, we're leaving now. That would have been the right path as opposed to, we'll just obliterate your nest and then take it over your corpses. Thanks. Then uh, we get into peanut hampers, multiple crimes. So it sounds like she joined the flock. I think that's fair. Did she commit treason against the flock by trying to get them wiped out? So it's a tricky question. Um, treason is a pretty rarely applied <laughs> um, law in the United States. Um, it has traditionally, at least, only been um, uh, charged essentially during times of war, not exclusively, but generally, um, and the times that it hasn't uh, have been hotly debated. Um, given that, um, you know, there wasn't actually any open hostilities prior to this, I think it is possible that she would be able to argue that they don't necessarily qualify as enemies of her state that she was giving material support to. They certainly became enemies of her state at the point at which they were very uh, colorly committing acts of war against um, the Areolans. Um, but, you know, I it, it's debatable. Treason is typically not charged because it's 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 just a very rare unusual crime um and there's typically anytime something is treason it's also something else <laughs> um uh, there are material support statutes for example in the united states that cover things like that um uh but i do think it is i do think she could be charged with it, it it's essentially a tradition or or a pattern of practice as opposed to it's not in the text that it has to be a time of war yeah agreed i i think it Treason's a high bar, and it's it's it carries the death penalty. So you, we applied it to to individuals after World War II who engaged in treasonous activity, giving aid and support to uh, the enemy. Uh, again, it's like Tokyo Rose, uh, you know, individuals like that who, you know, I thought it'd be fun to torture the POWs. It's like mm, no. No, we, no, we're, we're getting upset. Uh, 
there are lesser offenses that we see that still carry you know, significant uh, punishment, like, oh, rebellion. Uh, whoever engages in a rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or laws thereof or gives comfort or aid thereto shall be fined under this title and imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, uh, and there's a fine, and shall be incapable of holding uh, uh, any office uh, in the United States. So, sounding pretty, pretty good there for, I think she does it twice. Because threatening to call the Borg? So that one, so the incitement and rebellion is, or insurrection is a little bit, um, that one to me is a little bit dodgy just because it's a little specific. You have to be essentially, you know, it, it, it's it's different than helping an enemy from without. You are essentially trying to overthrow the government and set up your own government. Um, there are similar statutes that criminalize obstructing processes of government and things like that. Um, I think actually, Josh, the Borg is closer on the treason because the, the okay, Federation... Okay. I mean, I don't know if the Borg consider it war, but the Federation probably does, has been at war with the Borg for quite a while at this point. Um, I think I think you got her on that one, actually, calling the Borg. It, for <clears throat> They tried to wipe out humanity twice. Three times if you include time travel, twice if you lump that into one battle. So that we could split hairs there. Uh, she needs to go away like that that's not one the other stuff would everything prior to the board is bad definitely a prison sentence but when you cross into I will call the board in order to wipe you all out no yeah um no. Uh, just just uh I, I love that that was sort of the the, the cherry on the megalomania <laughs> Uh, uh, Sunday. Um, before we get too far away from it, I just wanted to briefly talk about the causality question, because I think we were alluding to this before. She called yes. in these people to fight, or with the intent that they would essentially cause violence and she would get to save the day. Um, does that make her civilly or criminally, li criminally liable for those violent acts that happened? Um, and I think that's actually a tricky question. Um, and I'm not an expert on criminal law, but my sort of, you know, big flashing red disclaimer, this is not legal advice, <laughs> thoughts on this, are that um, yes on the civil and probably no on the criminal. And so my quick and dirty analysis of this is that in general, sort of the touchstone of tort liability, one of the many sort of critical elements that we talk about in tort liability is causation. Um, and proximate cause is more than simply actual cause. It's not just you were the car that actually hit the person <laughs> that caused the accident. Um, you were somewhere along this chain of events um, that, that caused this injury and that um, your inflection point along that chain of events um, had, a had the foreseeable result of this person's injury. Um, and in that analysis, I think that you can really argue a very strong argument that peanut hamper <laughs> um, calling the salvagers, falsely representing to them that they should show up and take the salvage, 
um, had the foreseeable and not just foreseeable, but actually foreseen result of them um, attacking this city, trying to destroy it in order because she wanted to be the hero and save the day. In that chain of analysis under traditional proximate cause, I think she could be on the hook civilly for all of the things that we listed um, for the property damage. I mean, she can't pay any of this, but for the property damage, for the assault, for everything. On the criminal side, proximate cause is not really the touchstone. Um, how you determine whether someone um, can be found guilty, you, they, they have to have been the cause of the crime, but there's a little bit of split over how you actually determine that. Um, some jurisdictions actually do something like approximate cause analysis. Um, some use what's called the substantial factor analysis, although that has been coming uh, coming a little bit out of favor, but substantial factor being that you your actions were a substantial factor in the crime that was committed. Um, uh probably somewhat similar but it's essentially that you were involved but the model penal code has been moving away from that and instead has a slightly different um uh version of it um in which it is instead the defendant is guilty if the result of the defendant's action involves the same kind of injury or harm as the probable result and the result is not too remote or accidental in its occurrence and in this case her act that sort of starts this chain of events and is undoubtedly causally related, which is why I think she's on the hook for civil stuff, um, is does not, it's, it's fraud. It's a verbal representation. That does not involve the same kind of injury or harm as the probable result, which was destruction, injury, you know, physical bodily injury, arson, everything. <laughs> um, uh, and under the model penal code, at least, I think that she wouldn't be guilty of those crimes. What do you think, Josh? I agree on civil and I think maybe on criminal because she in, intended for violence to happen. The violence did happen. So the goal, her overt act led to violence, destruction of property, and death. Right. There isn't a conspiracy here. She merely points the scrappers at the village for nefarious things to happen. I wonder if we could define this as a riot and that she incited a riot and to be uh, liable under the California law for inciting a riot, one person must personally be committing violence, threats, or disturbing the peace. Does inviting them in cause that? And I don't know, this is like, we have to dig into case law to see how those terms are defined and how they've been applied over the years. Because this isn't, I'm leaving the garage door open for you so you can come in and then firebomb the city. Like there, there's nothing like that that's happening here. These scrappers don't know that they're stooges. They don't know that they're being exploited. She completely intends for them to cause acts of violence. So there's... Uh, That's an interesting question because the, the statutory language, at least in California, says doesn't act or engages in conduct that 
urges a riot or urges others to commit acts of force or violence. So it's interesting because, like you're saying, she clearly intended, and I think you might be right that this, you could probably fit what happened under the definition of riot. The only question is, is that would you get into trouble because the actual thing that she did was not come here and riot. <laughs> it was, oh, there's some stuff here and you should take it. <laughs> um, knowing that they would react to being told no with violence, right? Um, that's an interesting question. And I agree, you'd have to dig into case law to see where that goes. It is fascinating, as Mr. Spock would say. Uh, other th things that came to mind just watching this episode actually date back to uh, college. Uh, I took uh, several political theory classes and one dealing with the modern political theory, which is like 15th century forward <laughs> type, type things. You get Rousseau. We, we talked about France earlier. Uh, French philosopher who talked about uh, this man existing in the state of nature. And then when you leave the state of nature, you can't go back because that would require becoming uncivilized. This society attempted to do that with abandoned technology and go back to living with straw roofs and dying from sky snake bites that shows kind of... Uh, kind of dis tries to disprove Rousseau. Now, our, our hero prince who, you know, for the flock, figures out how to fly one of those spacecrafts really quickly. Uh, so it, it's either very intuitive uh, or uh, he's he's been reading up on manuals for, you know, a good chunk of his life learning how this stuff worked. So it, it could be a little of, um, it, it just wasn't completely off the, off the cuff that, he did learn. He had been reading up on what the ancients did, um, which sounds like maybe only a century had passed. So uh, that's also not clear. But again, I, I did think in terms of political theory with they tried returning to the state of nature. Well, and it's an interesting, uh, well, it's interesting also because um, uh, it's different concepts of the state of nature. And yeah. on the one hand, at first blush, you think, you know, uh, it's very idyllic. On the other hand, you also have, I think, the re the response to Rousseau was Hobbes, which is that uh, without uh, it's you know it's political theory, so it's without government. But without government, um, I think it's this is the famous quote: "Life is nasty, brutish, and short." Yeah, and they they don't give up on a form of government. So they they do get to was it leaky uh, that uh, which is way old <laughs> of. Uh, Thinking back to War and Peace from Roger Halstead way back at, at Homestead High School, that humanity survived because we learned to cooperate and work together. There are those who believe that, no, we learned to kill, uh, and thus that's what why we survived, which is also the beginning of 2001, which again raises those issues of what makes us work in a society. They have a functional society with language. They perform they they do live in a community where people perform tasks. Whether or not they have money is not clear. Or if they're purely just, uh, it's like some ideal communism where they, in the uh, abstract theory sense, not Leninist, 
uh, or Mao type communism, very different beasts, but they're, they're living in a community that sounds kind of platonic. And, and mm -hmm. yeah, I'm talking Plato, uh, where people live all performing a job and everyone has their needs met, but they just die very young and quickly if in case a sky snake attacks them. So yeah, there's still order, but they try turning back the flock. Yep. And I was going to say just briefly that this, to me, at least harkens back a little bit to the way to Eden from the original series. Uh -huh. um, people just trying to reject technology. It it does have sad consequences in the way to Eden has some sad consequences here as well. I mean, before peanut hamper and some modern medicine, right, they they lose a lot of their eggs. You know, every sky snake bite is fatal. Um, you know, there's, there, there are some drawbacks, but it's also, I think it is a you know, it's a perfectly respectable choice that if that's how they want to live, that's how they want to live. It's like, you know, those are Amish, you know, and going like, no, we're going to live this way. Although, except for the child endangerment, but. <laughs> oh, yes. And it's like, hey, it's okay if we have an 80% child mortality rate. It's like, that's an acceptable rate of loss. Like, you're okay with that? And, and to just, for, for anyone who's curious, at least how I think we're both thinking about this, uh, it, it, there's an important aspect here, which is I think consenting adults can go off to live in a commune in which they reject modern medicine. Um, you know, kids have to have a chance to, re to to determine whether or not they want that. Yeah, and and the other part of political theory is that we go from Rousseau to Hobbes to Locke to Madison, and Madison's the key to things working out with a constitutional government where it's founded upon individual freedom. So uh, like it does lead to the right place, but you bounce between the extremes before you get to Locke coming up with, with uh, the keystones that turn it, end up heavily influencing Madison. Uh, I'm sure Montesquieu has a role in that as well. But um, again, show that we did go to college as well and we can talk about these things for hours on end because that's how we roll uh, so uh nari any other thoughts on these two episodes uh just that you know i think we both had a long hard week and this is always a highlight though this is such a breath of fresh air um I, these are great episodes i really loved i loved the detour that was the peanut hamper romp um and i can't believe they actually brought back that loose end that was so wonderfully fresh and surprising absolutely brilliant creative team so with that everyone thanks for tuning in wherever you listen please leave a review we're in the closing stretch of doing three episodes a week, so yay. Uh, that said, Talking Trek is one of the highlights of my week. So everyone, stay safe, stay healthy, and above all, stay geeky. Thank you all, and live long and prosper.